Welcome back to the Rural Roundup, hosted by me, Kerry Hammond. This show is produced in association with the Scottish Government. On today's episode, Tiffany, George and Robert catch up with Stephen Thompson, a Rural Policy Specialist from SRUC, for the second Policy Spotlight update this year. Hi guys, it's great to have Stephen Thompson back here again. We spoke to him three months ago um, and he told us that after Royal Highland show there should be some more updates from government. Stephen, what came out after the show? Well, at the Highland show, the Scottish government announced that in 2025 there will be some conditions on your future support, your basic payment support plan going forward and that includes a new condition on calving interval for the voluntary coupled support payments for beef. Um, Before the Highland show there was announcement that there will be a new cross compliance measure on peatland and wetland um, maintenance so making sure that you don't degrade peatlands and wetlands and the other thing that probably came through the Highland show was an announcement of biodiversity audit. Uh, would be the the key things that I picked up on. So for the carving intervals, I do know there'd been a report out saying what the carving intervals for beef um, in Scotland currently is, and I'm sure um, the average was about 400 days. Do we have a figure on what the target's going to be? Uh, not that I'm aware of. So um, in a lot of the discussions and and um, presentations I've been doing over the last six to eight months. Um, I've been talking about the types of measures that could come in on coupled support. And remember, there was a commit, there is a commitment in the route map on a new condition on coupled support payments uh, in the beef sector by 2025. And that helps the government meet their commitment of uh, at least 50% of the support payments to agriculture being uh, having enhanced conditionality by 2025. So the uh, within that, I've been looking at what the Northern what Northern Ireland policy decisions have been, which is to look at calving intervals, um, finishing age, or at slaughter, and also heifer calving age. So I've been putting it in those kind of contexts and having discussions with farmers, um, and. What our report did was look at the, the distribution of uh, calving intervals across Scotland. And what I was doing was looking at what would it look like or how many animals would fall under 370, 380, 390, all the way up to 430 days in terms of calving interval. So there there has been no policy decision as far as I'm aware. It certainly hasn't been announced. Uh, but the analysis has been done to show what sort of numbers would fit in there. We have to remember that median, so the midpoint, half of the animals are under 371 days, uh, is the mean that's pulled up by a very, very long tail as you get into animals that maybe uh, the calf died at birth, etc., that are then getting up to th- getting up to over 700 days uh, for for their calving interval. So there's a very, very long tail in there. So um, I don't know where they will go. Uh, Northern Ireland have, have got a four-year transition from, I can't remember the starting number, but the end number is 385 days. Um, and I would imagine that uh, it would, well, I can't imagine. Uh, I, I don't think it would be over at that level in, in 2025. I think it would be over 400 days or around there. So the theory here, Stevie, is we're 
shaving the end off that that long tail. We're trying to drag that back and and stop the suckler cow getting a holiday. You know the cow that's lost a calf, tighten the whole thing up, and actually, from a farming perspective or a business advisor perspective, we've been trying to do that for years. You know, we've been trying to make that happen or trying to get people's minds out of the way of thinking that that's too good a cow to kill and actually she's an inefficient lady and she needs to go. So it's, it's good to see policy sounding like it's heading in that that kind of direction where there's a, is it a carrot or a stick? I suppose it's both to try and encourage people just to, to be that wee bit more efficient. Um, we're also seeing a lot of pushback from the 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 processors so processors on to finishers finishers are getting a, a pretty difficult time when it comes to carbon audits at the moment and the breeder gets off pretty much scot-free because we sell through the store ring at a, at a competitive public sale so it's interesting to see that policy world coming into the front end really where most of the emissions are anyway so for me it's quite quite exciting to see that that's what's going as long as it's what we think it is and you know it evolves into a scheme that's that's workable and the transition is is sensible because it is going to take a bit of time to change indeed and and part of it part of the journey that we've been trying to take the job the scottish government on is actually saying look you have to announce it now uh, for 2025 so you're giving people enough time so this year's bullying and then next year's bullying because this year's bullying can affect 2025 calving interval um, that you're giving people enough time to actually work things through uh, and realize that the, the that things have changed uh, and this is the first this is the first of probably many changes that will come in agricultural support in terms of conditionality and uh, from my mind this was always the this was always a, an efficiency gain plus a policy gain so the policy gain would be that um, carbon emissions from uh, from barren cows are, are perhaps reduced if farmers choose to cull like you suggested um, or at least the Scottish government aren't using public monies to pay for inefficiency on the farm um, and, and that that's an important message and this should also support the bottom line of farms. Uh, it may be unpalatable for many. There may be, and I've, I've heard, I've, I've given this, uh, given a presentation on this uh, to lots of different groups, and there are always, um, there are always um, issues that people will have with regards to bulls, with regards to the weather, with regards to lots of different things that affect the calving interval. Uh, and we have to remember that calving interval and calving rate are one and the same thing in that it's it's just literally looking at how your animals are performing uh, over over a given period of time um, and i i totally agree with you that um, the finishers are going to be the first in line for what we call scope three emissions and that's where the the retailers are pushing the processors the processors have to push the farmers farmers are going to actually have to work out where their feed comes from in scope three emissions so if it's a if it's a soya based feed that's basically uh, causing deforestation it will come with a higher footprint uh, all of these things are going to come to play in the next five years so actually getting getting the, the the industry to start thinking about the technical efficiency and lowering their footprint more uh, through policy mechanisms will actually enable them to support or enable them to continue to sell their product into the retailers and hopefully at a lower carbon footprint than others uh, others um, internationally that allows us to compete. And if we are a lower carbon footprint with scope three, that means 
that there's going to be higher demand for our product. So, Stevie, just to make sure I've got this right in my head, what we think it'll look like is if I, so if I, my own cows, if I've got, say I've got 100 cows at home, I get, I've got 90 calves on the ground and I've got 10 passengers. This is a very hypothetical situation. This is not how I roll. Um, but 90, we've got 90 cows. We run all them round. So we're bulling another, we're bulling that 100 again. We get 100 calves on the ground next year. Those calves that aren't born, or that weren't born this year, obviously don't get a beef calf payment this year. And their brothers or sisters next year would fail to get it as well. Indeed. Right? So, so you, double, you, you do take you, you're going to take a double hit on it. So in your in your um, situation there, you would have ten animals that wouldn't get your your Scottish beef payment um, in in twenty twenty five, and then in twenty twenty six, they wouldn't get it either if you kept those dams because they are obviously not going to they're not going to um, meet the calving intro criteria. Um, depending on what the, the criteria set are. So I can't see them setting it at over 700 days, that's for sure. Um, so so in that instance, you would lose, a, you've not got any money coming because you didn't have a calf in the first year. You're not going to get money in the second year because the cow, the dam, didn't meet the calving interval. The, the thing that we should always point out in here is your heifers automatically should qualify if the government choose that option. It's one thing that I've been looking at. I've also been looking at the second calving age, uh, second calving age as well, which tends to be about ten days, um, ten days longer. And then you've also got um, second calvers on a different holding, i.e., heifer with calf at foot was sold, and they tend to be twenty or thirty days uh, higher. So it can affect people, people's purchasing decisions, and it can affect that side of the market. We are, remember, only talking about 100 quid a calf um, in terms of uh, the output of the industry or the output of the calf, um, but that quite often is the difference between profit and loss, as you well know. So um, hopefully this this should help people actually start sharpening their minds on some of this. But as I say, we don't know what sort of derogations will be if there if there's a, some serious incident with bulls, infertility, if you've got them checked out. and they, I, I don't know what the rules of the game will be, uh, but that has to be worked out with industry and government. Uh, and there is a commitment to work with industry to actually iron out what should the targets be and what should actually, or what the rules of the game will be. It's really important that people realise that this isn't a herd average, it's a cow by cow or a calf by calf averages, or not average, cow by cow or calf by calf calving interval is what's being talked about. Because um, quite often people get straight into herd averages. And once we get into herd averages, you would need to push the bounds further and further out. Um, otherwise, you would get quite a few uh, people that have got follow, uh, got, got, um, no, I was going to barren cows coming into the next year they would they would their average gets pulled pulled up significantly particularly small herd uh, where one or two cows can pull an average up quite significantly i think listening to what you're saying there though really the progressive businesses the ones who are working hard on efficiency and, and aiming to be here in in 20 years time have pretty much nothing to fear from this would that be fair uh, I would say so. Um, I, I've spoken to, as I said, quite a lot of folk, and quite a lot of folk welcome it. Um, 
there's a lot of people who have got some concerns and unjustifiable concerns. Um, the other thing to remember is that currently the, this is within the guise of the existing legislation and the existing legislation means that this is a ring-fenced pot of money as far as I can see. And if it's a ring-fenced pot of money, then the money will cycle back into those animals that are on the ground and getting uh, and make, meeting the criteria. Now, that doesn't mean to say you need to put all of the, the recycled money onto all calves. You could actually decide to actually um, incentivize the top performers. So everything under 365 days. You could choose lots of different ways to do this so that... Uh, the, it doesn't need to be 100% of the money. It could be 50% of the money goes on calf registration, as we currently have, and 50% on performance. That could be a transition. Uh, and the just transition in this is going to be important, that we, we actually work this through so that it's not a draconian step for some farmers and crofters. I think there's enough in history shown us about chasing one trait or one specific metric isn't there I, I would hope there's going to be more in it down the line than just calving interval indeed and I, interval. I i'm a i'm a real supporter of what i call a biodiversity grazing scheme uh, where you've got native breeds on hills uh, or or in the western isles on the machair or whatever um, i don't think it needs to be purely about carbon i think there's important role that cattle can have in upland systems on rough grazing systems where the actual the, the key issue isn't really about carbon it's more about the biodiversity provisioning that they're doing and um, in my head and in the report that we wrote we've actually recommended that there needs to be an option for smaller herds of native breeds that are on rough grazing areas to actually be in a biodiversity grazing uh, scheme where they're they have some other conditions rather than just purely calving intervals so it could be uh, a moorland grazing plan or something like that, that 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 would allow them to continue to get the coupled support payment, um, as as and and actually deliver for society. the The key issue is how long have we got with coupled support payments, um, because making changes on an IT system for a couple of years was likely going to be quite a challenge, um. Again, I've been uh, I've been advocating that we maybe need to put more money into um, coupled support payments in order to drive more changes. Uh, so the more the more you put into it, the more conditions you can put on it. And of course, the government have, have got uh, an objective to reduce emissions and our biggest emissions are enteric methane at the moment. So by the sounds of it, when you were talking about um, grazing the cattle on the hill, that would then go and have a big benefit for the people who are trying to do a biodiversity audit. What is it looking like a biodiversity biodiversity audits going to entail that i cannot tell you because i literally don't know um so the biodiversity audit uh, there's been lots of discussion as to what a biodiversity audit would entail um currently i don't think there's enough um environmental advisors in scotland for everyone to do a full biodiversity audit uh, that you and I may think of in terms of an EEC scheme or something like that. So it's going to have to be something relatively straightforward and relatively simple. Uh, the words in, in all the policy discussions are that it cannot be in a, 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 an advisory or consultant's charter, i.e. the money flows to the farmer. The farmer then has to pay a consultant in order to get in the gate, uh, to, to get in to be eligible. 
So um, in my mind, again, the biodiversity audit, and this is just my mind, would be that it's to do with habitat maps uh, overlaid on your your IARCS mapping form in, in the LPIS system. Um, and then you, I, I don't know what you would need to do with it, but if it's embedded within the IARCS system, then it's perhaps much easier. I know that Nature Scott have got an app um, they've been developing an app uh, which can actually you can take geotagged photos on to demonstrate uh, some some of this uh, and some of the biodiversity that are on farms. I think that would also work in terms of a SEPA and water management uh, process as well. So I think I think we shouldn't we shouldn't be fearful of some of these things because I think some of the some of the solutions that are being talked about whilst they might seems scary to some of some farmers and crofters they actually could actually they could they could go a long way to supporting farmers and crofters actually demonstrating that they're delivering uh, above and beyond what people are thinking and in terms of that i again something i've been keen to point out is that whilst we're talking about biodiversity uh, on farms and habitats on farms just now Within the current IAC system uh, and the mapping system, remember we have got all of these things called ineligible features, so gorse, bracken, things like that, that were deemed ineligible within the EU system. They may have and likely have biodiversity benefits. Scree has biodiversity benefits in that it can provide habitat for uh, for whatever it is, voles or moles or rabbits. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an ecologist, so I can't tell you. But unless we bring all of those things back in and any land that's not currently in the system, so when you do your, your forms, then there's the claimed area and then there's the, the, the total area. You have to put in your total area. Um, so we have to actually start thinking differently about all of the features that are on the farm, not just those that are within the claim area and are currently eligible for BPS and, and greening payments. Just going back to what you said about the consultant's charter, Stevie, as a consultant, I think I speak for us all, none of us want that. You know, that um, very complex eeks type scenario for all farmers i don't think we would find enough professional people who would want to do that type of job and it has to be farmer led it has to be money into the farmer's hands and a positive story i i would agree and, and the key thing here is to remember how these tiers might work so tier one is your entry entry tier where you would have your standard cross compliance and statutory management requirements they may change over time we might decide that we need to put things into statute and have cross compliance on them or we may choose that there needs to be more cross compliance measures on for example peatlands and making sure we don't degrade peatlands but then your 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 tier two the, the enhanced conditionality tier i mean I, I i i don't like the terminology i i keep saying that we need to talk about a sustainable farming tier which is or a sustainable food tier which would be tier one and then we would talk about a farming for carbon in nature which is tier two um, and those tier two conditions become really important because they become the stepping stone to tier three eek schemes so if you think about it as a continuation and a ramp they, then you've you you're kind of getting there so Again, the key for me has always been uh, is to make sure that the tier two don't come with huge compliance costs, because if they come with large compliance costs in terms of additional costs or income for gone, i.e. you're having to put 
some of your production off, then uh, farmers will suddenly work out or will have to work out which, you know, are they going to go into that tier two system or not? Um, tier two is still to be decided whether it's a graded system or a, a you meet a threshold and then you get a payment. That's All of these decisions have still got to be made. But for sure, without, without a doubt, we're going to have to do, farmers and crofters are going to have to do more for that tier two pot of money. Um, I think when I'm speaking when I'm speaking to farmers, there is still quite a bit of fear about what's coming down the tracks. Um, they're reading tidbits in magazines, they're hearing rumours, and you know what farmers are like. They like to talk about things, I guess. Um, how far away, really, are we from seeing big change? Uh, I would still say the big changes won't come until 26, 27, or any big change actually won't come immediately then the framework and the legislation for moving towards the bigger changes uh, will be you know that framework has to be in place that's the secondary legislation after this agricultural bill goes in front of parliament this year everybody seems to think that the the agricultural bill is going to tell us everything it won't uh, it's an enabling piece of legislation that gives the scottish government powers to lay secondary legislation etc etc that secondary legislation is still to be evolved. Um, in, the, in the interim, they're currently trying to change existing legislation to deliver this, these geek, the geek measure on peatland, introduce something on biodiversity audit and introduce the calving interval thing. And maybe the whole farm plan that I haven't <laughs> discussed um, that was also mentioned at the Highland show. So those are, those are currently coming in for 25 which means some of the focus has been taken away for what is the longer term changes. And remember that the Scottish government have committed to a just transition. So there will be no cliff face as far as I can see. So the changes will be ramped over time and will get more difficult or more challenging over time. Now, the key for, for you, George, is uh, when you're speaking to your clients are um, helping identify what which of the measures that the Scottish government have currently listed in tier tier two actually would work on their farm, uh, maybe challenging for their farm or their farm type or their their land type, um, and then what's missing? What what, what are, is the Scottish government missing key things there that could actually be easily done on rough grazing or easily done on grassland? Because the way I look at it is that the, the list that's currently published is very arable orientated. Um, and that, again, there's another question in there uh, about where does eco ecological focus areas sit. In my mind, they are options, and it's optional, so it sits in tier two. But there, are, I've heard people in government talking about ecological focus areas sitting in tier one. So that discussion has to be had, and there has to be agreement on that. So in my mind, it's not cross-compliance. That's, uh, that's currently you have to do X, Y, or Z, and you've got choices within that to get 30% of your support. And we have to remember it's only arable farmers that are currently doing anything really on ecological focus areas. So actually anything to do with the peatland geek measure, which will be largely uplands, and or the the voluntary coupled support payment for calf the calving interval is in essence leveling the playing field so that everybody's doing a little bit more for nature not just the the arable farmers where where they've got to do the ecological focus areas yeah you mentioned whole farm plan that's something that if you were a farmer you would be thinking 
what's it what's this going to entail that's that sounds big um $64 million question, and again, I know there's a, a subgroup, an ARIOB subgroup working on this with Scottish government officials. Um, in my mind, again, this is just my mind, I, I don't have any insight into it, uh, other than I, I know there's things like fair work declarations and um, th those kind of things. So some of it will be declarations. There's some discussion that carbon audits will become uh, a norm. Uh, in my mind, we don't need a carbon audit every year, but I'm not, I'm not making policy. Um, so it, it'll be that list. It'll be, I think it'll be more of a list of things that you need to, you need, you need to be doing. Um, although there is, there is some mention of economics in the at the Highland Show, uh, which slightly worries me in that we can't really be expecting full business plans for every farmer. Um, and some of the some of the early discussions from um, Scott Gov did have some very very detailed um, asks. Um, and I mean, if you think about it from a an administrative perspective, who's going to who's going to assess the quality of these things yeah. if it goes into ARPAD? Have they got the capacity to sit and assess eighteen thousand business plans? So it has to be a relatively it has to be relatively simple. Otherwise, it's just going to sit on shelves and nobody will utilize it. Um, certainly, government won't utilize it. Um, so, so there's two things always going on there. The government are trying to do things for, for example, the gov Scottish government have got a commitment to fair work principles. So actually um, getting farmers to state that they, they comply with that um, is part of their agenda. And, and I get that. I fully get that. Um, what I don't get is if you start straying into succession and business planning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, you know, the biodiversity audit, um, whether it has got commitments uh, or is just uh, basically trying to work out what Scotland's habitats are and getting farmers to confirm that. Um, I, I slightly fear in everything that I see is that there's uh, just a desire to capture data. Uh, and capturing data uh, means that that's work for somebody, uh, norm normally a farmer or a consultant. So, so there are elements in there that we need to be careful that we don't just just do something to capture data, baseline data, because uh, whilst that's important, um, it's also important to actually start getting actions rather than you know doing things on the ground that will make a difference for biodiversity or doing things on the ground that are going to make farmers more farms and crofts more technically efficient, which will lower their carbon footprint. And and in all of this, the the more I've uh, got into listening to what's happening on scope three, the more I've more I'm determined that agricultural policy needs to be that enabling piece of legislation. It needs to enable farmers to uh, grasp the chances that, that that scope three will have in uk retail sector which will include biodiversity so when you speak to the banking sector they're telling me already that in a couple of years time they're going to have to not only report on their carbon element or their greenhouse gas emissions in their lending portfolios and investment portfolios they're also going to have to start reporting on biodiversity so it's coming in all sectors so the the private sector's doing uh, the the retail sector is going to push on this uh, you're already seeing it if you're in the dairy sector you're already seeing your your point system for arla etc um, and you're going to have to change you're they're changing they're changing the rules of the game they're changing the rules of engagement that will come down 
all sectors of 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 the the supply chain right back to the the, the producers and as i said earlier into the feed manufacturers etc so you've got that pushing you've got the banking system are going to push and then policy should be somewhere in the middle helping uh, everybody do this because in my mind i think the retail and the the retail and the banking sector can push things faster than perhaps policy can so actually getting policy working with the crofters and farmers to actually deliver and enable them uh, is an important part of this we already know of one bank that is um, funding biodiversity audits and soil sampling. In my mind, the the the, the soil element is a. Uh, we should be spending some of some of the 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 BU money that is going to be repatriated, the thirty three million into into getting a proper baseline on soils, getting lidar done, um, so that farmers can utilise that raw data, that baseline data, and say this is this is where I am, this is where our industry is, uh, and then from that you've got the story going forward as to what it looks like. Um, if we don't have that baseline information, I'm I'm not quite sure how scope three emissions are going to work. Uh, and I, again, this is a rapidly evolving uh, area in terms of how we interact with with food. I, I was looking at um, I was looking in Australia, I just happened to be looking into Australia and um, stumbled across the accounts of one business, and it's seven million hectares. And it's got 450,000 cattle or cows, and it's got all of the environmental credentials listed. So, as a, you know, it's bigger than Scotland PLC in terms of that supply chain, and it's got everything listed there already. So, it's got its carbon footprint, it's got all of these impacts all listed out. And that's what we're competing against. We're competing against corporate agriculture here, and we need to we need to make sure that we can actually play play again alongside that. Uh, and showcase that we're actually doing things uh, at that same level, or if not better, uh, because that that's that's how this game is going to play out in the long term. Change obviously takes money, Stevie. One question we get all the time, other than the, how long is the basic payment going to last? The other one is, can I get a grant for insert whatever the desired item is? Is there? Do you see in the next few years? a return to sustainable capital grant scheme type activities, specific items getting funded and pushed, or is have we moved on from that? Um, that's a hard one. Uh, in my, again, in, in the, the stuff that we've been doing, uh, I say we, Andrew Moxie, myself uh, and others, we've, we've consistently said that there needs to be transformation support. And that transformation support is not just about advice, it means capital. Uh, because if we truly want transformational change in agriculture, Scottish agriculture, we need to actually, uh, we can't expect the capital burden of that to fall directly onto farmers. We need to enable, and again, I use the word enabling quite a lot just now, because that's what policy monies needs to do. It needs to enable farmers to, those that are not able to get into some of the tier two, the, the sort of the, the uncompetitive tier two, if, if you've not got um, enough hedgerows or whatever it is the, 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 the measure is, we're going to have to support people to, in, in order to let them get into that tier two as well as getting into higher tiers. Uh, and the higher tier element normally comes with that, that capital support. So why wouldn't we 
why wouldn't we support and help people transition to uh, providing across the board, providing uh, more for nature and carbon? So in my mind, that's the bit that's under developed and under discussed at this moment in time is this transit transformation pot and if you look at the the diagram the scottish government diagram with the tier one two tier one tier two tier three and four uh, if you look at the bottom of tier four there's a small box at the bottom right hand corner which is called transformation support um, and that becomes important now uh, there is a finite budget and uh, i've talked about it a uh, long uh, before which is that that budget is falling uh, pretty dramatically in terms of real terms uh, because of inflation and that inflation means that the policy monies don't buy as much from farming industry as it used to um, and that's a really important factor because in all of this then we need to work out where would we take the money away from so if there's a finite pot that comes out of Westminster and the Scottish Parliament then decide that that's the same budget they're going to put into agriculture. If we truly want to support capital monies, then we need to find out where we want to take that money from. And remember, for the first, the, the SCAGS bud, budget the, that came from the, it came from outside the normal budget. So there was money came for for uh, for transition, uh, um, basically climate transition funding came in. So there was an extra pot of money come in there. Um, so unless we can persuade people that uh, in order to deliver for society, um, that that uh, agriculture, in order to transform agriculture to deliver on climate change, which has got a, bit, it's got a long way to go um, on biodiversity, provide food and maintain uh, the economic contribution it has in, in rural economies. These are these are quite big challenges. I would argue we need more money. Uh, and if you look at the money that's been used to transform the energy sector, the, our transmission lines, uh, yes, there's large capital money coming in from private institutions, but there's also quite a lot of Scottish, not Scottish government, UK government money has been ploughed into those, that sector. And then you look at the transport sector, you look at all of these other sectors, which are decarbonizing and they're decarbonizing and then, uh, but they've been given uh, quite a lot of government support. We're trying to do everything on the same budget that we were, that was being used to produce food and do some of the agri-environmental schemes that we, we historically have done. So I think we need, we need to shout more for, for more budget in order to deliver this successfully for Scotland and UK uh, farming. And, uh, and that way you can then start getting capital to transform form the sector. But it's a difficult one. You, you've got choices and the trade-offs, I've talked about trade-offs before, and we have to start discussing what the trade-offs in all of this are. There's definitely big changes ahead. Um, thank you, Stephen, for joining us today and we'll look forward to speaking to you again in another three months' time. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rural Roundup. Subscribe to this channel to make sure you get notified of new episodes and we'll see you back here on the 2nd of August for our next episode. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock,
crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.